Welcome back to another edition of the Unofficial Guide to Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Lentesta, and this is our first show for July 2016. Something to get you guys through the heat, something to get you guys through the humidity, and something to get you the, through the dark days of summer. I'd like to introduce right now the man who is most likely to be invited next to join the European Union, Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I can see the Brexit from here, Len. <laughs> All right, Jim. So lots happened since uh, since our last show in the middle of June. Obviously, the biggest news was the mass shooting at the, uh, the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. I don't think there's anything that we can add to what's been said about this tragedy. If you live in the Orlando area and you need someone to talk to or you need some help getting through this, let us know and we'll do our best to help. Absolutely. I was going, going to go off on a little bit of a rant here, but then I decided against it. If anyone wants to hear my rant, send me the email. We'll, uh, we'll do it. Okay. You don't talk about politics on the show. Mm-hmm. By the way, we should we should probably take this time to acknowledge the other tragedy that happened in June of this year, which was the uh, the alligator attack at the Grand Floridian. That was uh, I, I can't imagine what the parents are going through there. To lose a two year old or any child in that manner is is horrifying. But yeah. when Walt bought the land in '64. There was a reason that Gatorland got built in Florida, Len. Alligators were so scarce at that point. In fact, it was, I think, in 1966, maybe 1967. There, there wasn't even an endangered species list at this point, but alligators were designated as endangered. And, right. and in fact, it wasn't until 1987 that they came off the list. In fact, they did the alligator recovery was considered one of the first real successes of the endangered species program. So initially, Walt Disney World really didn't have an alligator problem. And the weird thing is that Walt Disney World, like much of Florida, is now dealing with a a rather serious alligator program because they've come back in a really strong way. And they were there first. And then when you factor in the 55 miles of canals that Disney built on property to manage the water. Well, I mean, it's Florida. It's it's six inches above sea level. You're you're always going to have water problems. You've got basically these alligator throughways running through property. And and Mm -hmm. now... It's a genuinely strange situation because Disney, I'm sure we've seen a number of the videos that have popped up of people who've cited gators during other vacations at Walt Disney. Mm-hmm. There's particularly one that Vanity Fair posted where basically it's an employee dealing with a nuisance alligator that's trying to get out of the rivers of America into the trough at Splash Mountain. And oh, he's, geez, really? And he just basically keeps poking the thing back into the water like, no, no, go away. You know, I mean, it's just they got kind of lassadaisical about it. And to be honest, given that the first gator attack on property actually happened in 87. That's right. I remember there was another child that was attacked, right? But, uh, yeah, Fort Wilderness. I mean, the only yeah. difference was that because the it happened at Fort Wilderness and it was in a canal, because the, the, the young boy had his family members there to yeah. sort of back the animal, it had a better ending than, than what happened to poor Elaine Graves. But it's, it's still 40-some-odd square miles of Florida swampland. And yes, they pulled five and six gators out of Seven Seas Lagoon. They're still trying to figure out what to do here because it's Florida. Yeah, I don't know. That, I mean, there's, I don't think there's any way that you can, uh, you'll ever be able to say there are no alligators or no, snakes no, or whatever. It's just sad. All right, on to slightly better news. Jim, you were at Universal when Skull Island opened. Yeah, and this kind of does dovetail back into the tragedy of Pulse. 
Universal was getting ready to open this giant new attraction at Iowa, and there was going to be a giant VIP party and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, inv- invitations had gone out to, yeah, lots of people. Given that, that Universal actually lost two of its people in the shooting. It just seemed unseemly to celebrate. And so they contacted everybody and said, I'm really sorry, but we've decided to cancel the event. No one's heart was going to be in it. I mean, no, I not at all. So. No, no, no. In fact, I, I sent back a note to say that I completely understand and fully support this decision. And three hours later, they reached out and said, but would you still like to come down? And it's like, what? It was going to be a low-key thing. And yeah. the, it was only a few people, right? By theme park standards, it was a few people, maybe a hundred. Yeah. But we got to ride the attraction and then afterwards got to speak with Adam, the show producer, and, and of course, Mike West, who wrote Hurt on this project. And I, I got to tell you, if you look at this attraction carefully, it's basically Universal's F you to anybody who says, you know, they only make rides with screens at Universal. Right. Yeah, that's the big knock, right? Yeah. The screen gets in with Yeah, that's it exactly. Yeah. This is an 80-foot version of the wall that holds Kong back and giant gates that open and multiple animatronics scattered along the track. Even ends with a 25-foot tall version of Kong basically from the chest up that has some of the most impressive animatronics I've ever seen. Really? What this basically is, for those of you who've been to the West Coast and ridden the Universal Tram Tour at Universal Studios Hollywood, you know Mm -hmm. that the King Kong 360 vignette on the tram, it starts off with you being attacked by raptors, and then suddenly you've got screens surrounding it. That's why it's Kong 360. And Kong fights next to, over, and on top of your tram as he's battling with three V-Rexes, which I guess are the unholy marriage of raptors and T-Rexes. Sure. The big scene in this attraction is that scene. But this version was totally reanimated for 4K. It's still impressive as hell. And now there are two additional show scenes before that set in other parts of Skull Island. And then it ends, of course, with this this animatronic encounter. I got to ride just behind the cab so I could look in at the driver. And each of these ride vehicles, all five of them, have a different animatronic figure as the driver. Who really? then turning around and gesturing to the folks behind them and doing a different narration. So in theory, if you had enough time, you could have five different experiences based on what the driver has to say about the action. I didn't know that there were different narrations. That makes it regrettable. Yeah. So how's, how's the action on the ride itself? Is it good? I mean, is it smooth? Is there a lot to see? It's a giant ride vehicle. And I mean, this thing carries 72 people at a time. Wow. You leave the load area and then you go outside, pull a U-turn and then roll through the gates of of the wall at Skull Island and then, you know, go into Kong's world. This is the first basically outdoor attraction in Orlando that has rain mode. If you have an outdoor coaster or that sort of thing or, or it rains or there's lightning in there, or you shut down. Mm-hmm. And they can actually go straight into the attraction. They disregard the sort of U portion outside and roll straight in. Oh, that's smart. I looked at my iPhone weather every day and, and uh, literally I thought the, uh, the screen was broken because it was uh, 91 and 77. <laughs> uh, with rain every day. It was, it was the exact same forecast for nine of the, uh, the 10 days that over the summer. It was pretty consistent down there. If you're walking around in it, the term they use is brost. <laughs> Once again, in sort of the style of Escape from Gringotts and Forbidden Journey, there's a very elaborate queue. Oh, you, you'd previewed the queue for us in a previous show. Yeah, but they have definitely plussed the queue. There are animatronics in it now. 
there's at least one live human actor hidden in the shadows waiting to make you fill your adult diaper. There's also <laughs> a great sort of a projected effect where you go by this set of skulls and you see out of the corner of your eye that, wait a minute, did I just see somebody back there in this? You sort of see this fierce looking warrior loom out of the darkness and eye you with, you know, ill intent and then disappear in the shadows. Oh, nice. It's, just they pile it on and pile it on. And what's interesting is they pulse you between large rooms with big effects to narrow spaces to large rooms. Mm. I mean, it, it, is it my favorite attraction on the planet? No. I would give it a solid B. And I know come Thea Award time, the folks in the industry are really going to recognize Skull Island Reign of Kong for what it is. You have to remember that one of the things that was sort of powering Skull Island through development at Universal was that they were going to do another King Kong movie. And right, and then it didn't happen. Well, no, the, the rights got sold to Warner Brothers. So their version of Kong, the, the movie they're making now, is the 100-foot-tall version of Kong. So sure. maybe they were lucky that they didn't end up with that project because that meant a much bigger animatronic. Other things that opened in the last couple of weeks, Frozen Ever After. And when I say opened, I'm uh, using my air quotes on it because it, it opened for like 20 minutes one day. And then uh, let's just say it's, it's had some technical difficulties. Now, Jim, I know that you and I talked about this at the beginning of the summer, that mm -hmm. there were rumors that uh, it wasn't actually going to be ready until uh, September. It looks mm -hmm. like that's probably true. Yeah, so so basically every day the ride opens, it stays open for a couple of hours, and then it goes offline, they clear the queue, and then it sort of limps along for the rest of the day. Let me ask you the, the question straight up. Did Disney open this thing on June 21st because they didn't want to look bad by delaying it, or did they think it was actually ready on June 21st? I have to say that given the summer that they've already had between... You know, Rivers of Light having to be put off. And speaking of September, I'm hearing that that's kind of wishful thinking on the company's part that Rivers of Light <laughs> will be back and up and running by September. Okay. If they had just stuck with the opening of Soaring around the world on the 17th, but they felt compelled. It's like, we have to do this. So they, they opened it without really doing any test and adjust. The AAs are absolutely amazing, particularly the Olaf, yeah. the let it go moment where you're sliding backwards and with the lighting effects. They've done some amazingly good, solid work here. And you actually said that, you, you said that a, a month ago, you said that, that yep. those were going to be the two, the mm. two key things. And I guess they, you had previews or some sort mm. of premonition, Jim, that it was going to happen. But let's call it that. You had a feeling. We had like a 10 people from our team that were mm. there on opening day and saw it. They all thought it was better than they expected it to be. They were all mm. fans of Maelstrom. I don't think any of them thought it deserved to go, this, this uh, attraction deserved to go in Norway, but they all came out and grudgingly said it, it's better than they thought it was going to be. The fluidity of the Olaf animatronic is amazing, mm -hmm. and then the Let It Go scene is done way better than they uh, than they thought. Is it their favorite attraction in the world? Maybe not, but it was better than they thought. And, and you're right, you, you, you nailed the uh, months ago, you nailed what the two key scenes were going to be. So it's a little premature to say this because we're, we're really in this first week of operation. But it mm -hmm. is already having the impact that the managers at Epcot had hoped it would. What is it? The, the San Angelin restaurant? Oh, just San, across uh, from San Angel Inn. Yeah, they, uh, they're doing uh, breakfast now in Mexico. But sadly, yeah. not margaritas. No, I don't know. If I were about to get into a five-hour-long line, a margarita would be a very good incentive. <laughs> That's exactly right, doesn't it? I mean, I don't understand this. <laughs> Forget about 
the free Mickey bars. It's like, here, yeah. your complimentary margarita. Absolutely. Fire our line. Keep them coming. Can I get this chocolate with some tequila? Exactly. That's right. The surveys that we're getting back from people, and again, it's you know the first week of operation. There's a lot of, you know, just opened hype with yep. it. But it's uh, it's one of the highest rated rides in uh, in Walt Disney World right now. It's somewhere between Big Thunder Mountain and, and Tower of Terror. Still, still only belongs in Epcot? It's still going to have the capacity that Maelstrom had. Before we recorded today, I sat and watched the old Maelstrom ride and then watched the Frozen Ever After. And what's mm-hmm. kind of interesting is that the new ride, because they've obviously taken previous space in the attraction and change it into space that the boat can go through. It's actually mm-hmm. almost a full minute longer than Maelstrom. Right. Maelstrom, what was it? I think four minutes and 30 seconds. And this is five twenty-five or that. So, so you're definitely getting more show, but yeah. you still have the same somewhat miserable capacity. And something that folks need to be aware of is that there are discussions underway now about possibly opening Epcot, especially during the summer months, as early as six o'clock in the morning for little kids. I mean, the notion of you can do the character dining, but you make it available only for resort guests. You know, they get in early, they can get their frozen fix, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you can't begin offering that until you've addressed all your tech issues. And right now... No, it would totally make sense, though, because they could yeah. they could keep Mexico open. They could keep Norway open. Mm-hmm. They've already got uh, France open. I mean, they could just open UK and Canada and have half of World Showcase open. It totally makes sense. Speaking of capacity, we, we actually counted the number of people who could go through. Um, yep. And, and it, was, uh, it was about nine, between 900 and 1,000 people an hour, depending on whether it was, uh, it was working well or not. That's... But- so again, one side of Dumbo gets about 700 people an hour. This is slightly better than that. Um, it's right at basically what Toy Story was, Toy Story Mania was before the third track. For that kind of popularity uh, for the attraction, that is not a good capacity to have. No, no. Without getting into specifics, just be aware that that side of the park may see something coming in the fall of. 2017 that might help alleviate this. Which side of the park? The Norway side of the park? The Norway side of the park. And all I can tell you folks is take a look at what Pixar is making for 2017 and then give some thought (sighs) to what perhaps might happen to the pavilion that's next to Norway. And that's all I can say at this point. Uh, Okay. I know you would uh, you would leak to me something which we won't speak about for the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World. Yes, Is that still yes, in? Yes, yes still that's, in? that's still coming. And for you fine food fans, okay, I can't. That, that's as far as I can that's go. It, that's clue, right? you go on that one. That's about it. <laughs> okay. All right. So, All right. Uh, so we talked about Soren when Royal Summer House opened. I'm not a huge fan of, of Frozen being in Norway. I will say mm-hmm. having toured actual Norwegian architecture in Norway. They did yep. a pretty decent job of capturing the look, especially the uh, the grass roof stuff, which is uh, traditionally Norwegian. What have you heard about the over at the studios, the new Star Wars Galactic Spectacular? They've just added a bunch of new effects to it uh, today, I think, too, right? We've talked previously a little bit about this, that uh, why they had to make that change. It was largely because of the impact the newer fireworks were having on all the animals that had just been trained to go out on the savannah at night. 
it's really not a coincidence that this new show cuts back on pyro and really sort of piles on the projected effects because the animals aren't quite as upset about projected effects that are a mile and a half away. Yeah, fireworks you can hear all over probably. Yeah, yeah I, I have heard that there are already some guest problems with sight lines for the projection stuff. I've heard that as well, that you pretty much have to be straight on to see it. Yeah. And that's the problem. The previous Star Wars show, you could be anywhere on Hollywood Boulevard or at the front of the park and still have a great show experience, you know, still really enjoy that show. Now you were back in Steve Davison country where it's like, if you stand in this 30 foot square area, you have an amazing show. And the rest of us are kind of like, is that Harrison Ford or is that a Wookiee? <laughs> So is part of that perspective problem the fact that there's just not a lot of space to roam around at the studios these days because everything is blocked off? Or is it just is it a is it a characteristic of the of the show itself? They could have all the construction fences down and the show would still have issues. Okay. Going forward, once the Star Wars experience opens, likewise Toy Story, you will see I mean they've already built a new pyro area directly across the street from the studios and they're using that as their launch site. We'll see they'll fix this. They will eventually mm -hmm. figure it out. But for right now, I mean we're still in that strange sort of space that folks who went to DCA for those three and four years that that park was being transformed. It's just sort of like, it's not the entertainment experience you expected, but you understand a better one is coming. It's just harder. You know, it's one thing when you're, a, you know, a Disneyland annual pass holder or somebody who lives in the area where it's like, okay, I can come back in six months and this is fixed. It's quite another thing for folks who are making that once-in-a-lifetime trip to Walt Disney World. And it, I can't see this. And it's like, well, too bad. Yes. Oh, well, all right. I have sympathies for both sides. I mean, they're working as fast as they can. But this is a pretty huge project. And, and there's whole aspects yep. of it between the swapping out the, the entrance to the park, you know, losing the whole entrance off of World Drive that has yet to be done. I saw that uh, Disney got approval for those interchange changes. Yep. Uh, so, boy, the, the fascinating reading that we do behind the scenes show. Yep. Speaking of fascinating reading, so the, uh, let's talk about today's show topic, Oy. which is River Country. And this is a listener suggestions from uh, Steve Cantafio. Steve, thanks very much, who emailed us on June 20th, which was the happened to be the 40th anniversary of River Country opening. Just coincidentally, Steve emailed us and said, hey, how about a show on, on River Country? And we both kicked this around for a few minutes and said... Sounds great. And then I began the research, and it's like, once again... It becomes Roots the miniseries? <laughs> there we go. You know, and River Country didn't open on June 20th. It opened July 4th, 1976. That's the grand opening. That's when Susan Ford showed up, and we're going to get to that story. But when River Country initially opened in 76, the Imagineers didn't build River Country because they were looking to entertain the millions of tourists who visit the Magic Kingdom every year, but rather for those tens of thousands of people who set up their tents and trailers at Fort Wilderness Resort and never leave that campground. Okay. Wed didn't build the six-acre water park because they were hoping to open this whole new aspect of themed entertainment, but rather the Imagineers were hoping to get some pretty frugal vacationers. I mean, the, the, these campers who will travel all the way to Central Florida but then won't spring for a ticket to the Magic Kingdom. They were just trying to get them to open their wallets just that little bit further. Yeah, and these, these were people who, by camping, were already saving as much money as possible. 
right? That's it exactly. So that's really the fiscal scheme that drove the development of, of River Country. Walt Disney always believed that a campground, a clean, affordable, themed camp area, was a crucial part of Project Florida. And and that was largely because Vacation Land, which was the campground that the Rathers operated just down the street from Disneyland, he'd seen how well that done. But taking that into account, and we've all seen a picture of that bar napkin. Maybe it wasn't a bar napkin. Um, you know, again, <laughs> whenever I bring up Walt drinks, there are people who get upset. So Walt had a napkin, and he drew on that his site plan for uh, Walt Disney World. And clearly on that is the phrase that's written and a little arrow pointing to where he wants the camps and the, motel, uh, the motels to go. But this site, the one that Walt picked... Mm-hmm. Is, is well east of Bay Lake. But again, this plan develops over time. And if we look ahead to the version of, of the Project Florida site plan from 1966, the campground isn't near Bay Lake at all. In fact, Walt's thoughts now are, given the way he wants to develop all of the swampland and cattle pasture that he's purchased, mm-hmm. he's now thinking that the, the, the resort needs two camping areas. Now, the first one was going to be built to the west of the resort's entrance complex, which, for those of you who haven't seen this version of the plan, this was actually down really close to I-4 and, and where I-4 and 192 meet. This was going to be the parking area for the, the Magic Kingdom's day visitors down there. Oh, so that's uh, that's south of the Animal Kingdom. Well, absolutely. And, you know, wow. But it was going to be this giant parking lot for 11,000 cars. The thinking was, and again, this is Walt being dramatic and cinematic. So you park your car, you climb on a monorail, you now ride the monorail up the equivalent of World Drive. But you pass through Epcot, the city. And then after you get oohed and odd at that, suddenly here you are at the edge of the theme park zone and you zoom by a couple of picturesque Disney-built hotels before you finally are let out at the Magic Kingdom. And at the end of your day, you have to you have to reverse that process. So coming mm-hmm. and going, you're seeing the real wonders of Walt Disney World. And to give you some idea how big this complex was going to be, Lynn, it started basically to the east where ESPN Wide World of Sports Complex is. Uh, That was where they were going to build a trailer park complex. And then it stretched as far north as the World Drive entrance to Disney's Hollywood Studios. So it's a huge, huge piece of property. Wow. I because Fort Wilderness now, because Fort Wilderness is a huge chunk of land. It's funny you bring that up. A lot of the times people describe Fort Wilderness as being 650 acres. I've also come across people saying it's 700 acres, and then there's the 1,000 acres. And in, in trying to determine which one is correct, it turns out there's a couple of different iterations where they factor in parking lots, back-of-the-house stuff, uh, right. that sort of thing. So, But still, that's that's bigger than the Animal Kingdom. Absolutely. To get back to the two camping areas, campers area number one was supposed to be located approximately where the Animal Kingdom parking lot is right now. The second one was designated as wilderness camping, and this was going to be set up at the point where the Kilimanjaro Safari meets Disney World's tree farm. You know, there's just to the north there. And then then to really put an interesting little bend on the story, right up to the north of where this wilderness camping area was, was going to be built 
was where Walt mm-hmm. originally designated where Walt Disney World's 7,500-acre wilderness preserve was supposed to be built. Oh, really? Yeah. If you go to YouTube, there's a film called The Magic of Walt Disney World. It was produced by the company in 1972, basically to promote the resort. It was sent out into theaters with a Dean Jones comedy called The Snowball Express. So it's like, hey, we're going to Vermont and Florida, all in one weird little film uh, going experience. But So here's this 75-acre parcel of land, which in this movie is described as a private area set aside for a special purpose. Over 75 acres of land and water have been designated as a conservation area for the creatures native to this region. Still as primitive as it was 500 years ago, this environment will remain untouched and undisturbed by man. Very noble purpose. But here's the weird thing. If you overlay the 1965 site plan on the bar napkin to the, mm-hmm. the developed one, this same wilderness preserve is also where Walt wanted to build his airboat ride. I don't know if they were going to be issuing hearing protecting to the alligators and the, the cranes and the bobcats <laughs> out there. But, but again, Walt was wow. very fluid with his thinking about what he wanted to do in Florida. So Disney actually has a nature preserve now, but it's, it's off property, right? It's a little yeah, bit. Yeah, well, that was actually one of Michael Eisner's rather intriguing swaps with the state. Yeah, it was a land swap for development, right? That's it, exactly. He wanted to, to take more of the 43 square miles of land that they had in Osceola and Orange County. But in order to do that, that meant that he had to step away from this, you know, all this wetlands that had been previously set aside. So look, if I buy this this ranch and turn it into the Walt Disney World Wilderness right. Preserve, they've continued to buy parcels that abut yeah, it. That's what I was going to say. I think because uh, in, in part of the recent development that they did, they agreed to buy like another 80 acres or something of the uh, of the adjoining property of the the wildlife preserve to to get around the the I guess the watershed impact. That's of exactly. some recent development they're doing. Yeah. So essentially what they're doing is this, they're using like like carbon tax credits. Give us 20 acres inside of Walt Disney World and we'll buy 80 acres of, you know, central Florida swampland or something. It's, it's a pretty canny way of, of staying true to what Walt wanted to do. Yeah. And at the same time, so much of this development seems to be happening in Osceola County coming from Tampa. You know, that seems to yeah. be the real growth spot, at least for the for the Seabull future. Okay. So, uh, so let's get back to our positioning of our campground. Okay. Uh, the, the original thing was going to be somewhere south of, or somewhere yeah. centered around the Animal Kingdom. How did Animal Kingdom, how did it end up by the Magic Kingdom? A lot of this is the result of Walt suddenly passing on December 16th, 1966. Walt had a lot of very loyal lieutenants, you know, a lot of very, very talented men, but they kind of lost their nerve uh, when Walt died, especially when, you know, you're being handed 40 square miles of property developed. You know, for a time, they were so frightened by what they were being asked to do in Florida. There was a plan to move the Magic Kingdom down to the corner of 192 and I-4, figuring that if we build it there, people will see it from the highway. We don't have to build that, you know, that five-mile-long north-south road. We don't have to put all of this money You'd into building. You'd have to run electricity out five miles, yeah, infrastructure. No, that's yeah. it, exactly. And it was Dick Nunes who actually fought tooth and nail. It's like, look, if we don't put at least the theme park, if we don't put it up there, we'll never, never build out there. That yeah. means no Epcot. That, you know, and so he was the one who, who sort of held their feet to the fire. What ended up happening was that if you go to things like the Walt Disney World Preview Guide, Mm-hmm. which, you know, the company published in 1970, 
they kept talking about how the resort was going to have all of these wonderful water-related activities. In fact, uh, quoting from the guide here, uh, Bay Lake and the Broad Lagoon at the resort will feature a three-mile-long pleasure waterway dotted with natural and man-made islands along the shoreline. There'll be white sandy beaches that'll extend for miles, beckoning sunbathers and swimmers, special lakeside facilities available for barbecue and picnics, and the waters of the lake and the lagoon will always be crystal clear, providing perfect conditions for swimming, water skiing, boating, sailing, and sightseeing. So clearly that always crystal clear thing didn't work out. Yeah. First of all, there's a brain-eating amoeba, right, that they found in the uh, the water. So they decided that it's going to be somewhere near the Magic Kingdom? Yeah, they decided that they wanted to put the camping area as close to the water as possible. So, you know, like every other part of the Disney resort, they could tap into the water activities. That was pretty much the decision. You know, okay, when we build the campground, it's going to be close to the water somewhere on Bay Lake. Walt passes away in 66. The thing opens in 71. When's, When's this decision made? Well, the spring of 1971, <laughs> they kind of locked in where the campground would go in 68, 69. And that's really okay. as far as they went, Len, for a long time. It's campground goes there. That's a campground. It's supposed to be rustic. You don't have to build 12 yeah. stories out. Jim, it'll, it'll, we can okay. bet this out in a long week. Well, that's <laughs> what's kind of the thinking. So, all right. Now, picture this. Dick Nunes has left Disneyland and is now Field Marshal Rommel, basically, of the Walt Disney World Project. Okay. He's the one who's going to get this thing open on time for October 1st, 1971. And Card okay. Walker one day mentions casually, oh, oh, Dick, what's the update on the campground? And Nunes? <laughs> Just like, a, a, it's going great. I'll get you a full update on that next week. <laughs> And then immediately turns around because there's nothing, nothing. I mean, nothing's been done. I mean, we're not talking about, like, they haven't started construction. They haven't started designing it yet. (laughs) In the fall of 1970, so a year out. A year out. So he turns to his loyal Disneyland lieutenant. You know, again, Dick brought a lot of of his people with him from California to Disney World. And one of them was Keith Kambeck. Keith Kambeck. So Dick gets on the phone, calls Keith and says, okay, Keith, what do you know about camping? He says, I know Absolutely nothing about camping. Uh, you don't know about camping? You can't build a campground. To Nunes' way of thinking, perfect. This is the ideal guy for the job because he's not going to come into the project with any preconceived notions. So, Oh, it's a good way of looking at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he says, okay, okay, Keith, here's the deal. Here's some petty cash. Get in the car. I want you to drive around the country. And picture this, the fall of 1970. Get in the car. Drive around the country. I want you to visit as many campgrounds as possible. Get a sense of how they're operating, how they're laid out. And then come come back and design and then build Fort Wilderness. And so Keith does that. You know, goes to mom and pop. He He does. in the car. He gets in the car. He does the mom and pop thing, visits those. He goes to the national parks. He gets a good sense of what he wants. So he comes back to Disney, Disney World, and I'm ready to begin working and walks in the door. And it's like, and but the Walt Disney World project is in crisis mode at this point. And it's largely for circumstances that have nothing to do with Fort Wilderness. Basically, what had happened is the two giant hotels, the, the Contemporary and the Polynesian Village, People don't remember this uh, these days, but 
Disney was never supposed to operate those hotels. They, they were actually built by U.S. Steel, and the idea was that once they were finished, U.S. Steel would also mm-hmm. operate the hotels. Right. We've talked, we think we've alluded to this in a, in a yeah. very early show. Okay. And so anyway, what ends up happening is the folks from U.S. Steel go to Royal Disney and say, oh, you know, by the way, those hotels you want to open for October, not going to happen. We can probably have them open for spring of 1972. Uh, yeah, maybe. okay. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that did not like, go over well. No, I mean, just that he gets this news on a Friday, and by Monday, he is buying out U.S. Steel. It's like, look, we're taking over that project, and we will have these hotels open for our, our, our opening date. But, you know, now the problem is that suddenly Walt Disney World was already spiraling out of the control financially. I mean, this project okay. was initially projected to cost only $100 million. At this point, it's a $400 million project. And that's in 1971 dollars, so a billion dollars Yeah, and and then when you factor in that suddenly Roy and Dick Nunes are grabbing people off of other things to finish the contemporary and the poly, there's nobody to help Keith. Let alone, there's no there's no bodies and there's no extra money to build this campground. So they give they give Keith an axe. (laughs) That's right. You know, you and you will finish this project. He just decided, you know, okay. In, in kind of a Phil Silver's Sergeant Bilko sort of a way. It's like, all right, I will make this happen. And the way he made this happen was that he formed Cambex Raiders. And on every other construction site, every other aspect of Walt Disney World, at five o'clock in the afternoon, the project would shut down and all the construction workers would go home. After dark, Cambex Raiders would gather at you know, the place where Fort Wilderness was going to be built with pickup trucks and as many vehicles as they could get their hands on. And they would then travel to the construction sites around property and liberate supplies. Reallocate. Um, Reallocate. Reallocate. There we go. In fact, there's one particularly famous story where Marty Scalar included this in this his Dream It, Do It book, where basically they were setting up the administration offices at Fort Wilderness, and they had they had no equipment. So they figured, well, legal's got to have stuff. And so they yeah. pussed into Walt Disney World's legal office and take the desks, the filing cabinets, all of the, su- the, the supplies. Mind you, they take the papers out of everything you know, yeah. and put it carefully in the floor. So, I mean, they're, they're not nails. <laughs> but I just, you know, I... I just got to, you know, imagine the lawyers coming in the next day and it's like, okay. Huh. <laughs> huh. Okay. <laughs> Bob. Sears <And> was here. <laughs> they took back their desks. <laughs> but what I especially love about the timing of this is that, again, this is going on in for spring, summer, or fall of 72, or 71. And at this exact same time, Walt Disney Studios is, or the animation studios, is working on Robin Hood. But again, it's, of course, the Merry Men hiding in Sherwood Forest. They would take all these sure. supplies and hide them in the Cypress Swamp down by Bay Lake. So, And no one's, no one's going to go look in the swamp for a desk. Nobody cares that much. No. There we go. <laughs> and now the downside is, even with being as clever as, as Keith is, he's still not able to get it open in time for the official opening oh. day. In fact, right. uh, they miss it by about seven weeks. Fort Wilderness doesn't officially open to the public till November 19th, 1971. Mind you, you'd okay. never know this from watching the, the grand opening of uh, Walt Disney World television special. It's available for on YouTube, folks. It's a 90-minute long program aired on NBC October 29th of 1971. Three weeks before the thing opens. And so you have mm-hmm. this footage. They pitched the one place in the construction site that was kind of done. 
And in fact, what's so funny is they set up two pop-up trailers. And then on the half-finished road in the background, they keep sending these two couples on tandem bikes back and forth on the half-completed <laughs> road. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, ooh, you know. In this setting, Jonathan Winters is doing improv, and you know somewhere now there's an executive at Disney who's trying to figure out how do we get that down offline? Because, you know, at one point in this bit, Jonathan and his family are sitting around a f- the fireplace, and, you know, and the son comes up with something in his hand, and, and Jonathan basically says, say, Willie, what do you got there? Let me take a look at those. Oh, those aren't robin eggs. No, sir, those are mommy alligator eggs. That's what they are. You better be careful, and you put those back right away, or mommy alligator will get after you and go, Rah! and uh, you'll be gone like that. And it's like, oh, not the right, uh, not the right you video know, to, and, and to then, show. To double down on this, Jonathan swats his neck and, and looks, and what he thought was a gnat is Tinkerbell, which he has to fix her bent wing and give her mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And it's just, for me, it's it's a very weird way to introduce Fort Wilderness to the world. you know. To, but the TV going public must have loved it, because when this place opened up with only 250 campsites, mind you, it was book solid overnight. And in fact, there was so much demand for campsites at Fort Wilderness that as soon as Keith and his crew got through Christmas of 1971, they immediately began building another 250 campsites, which was why the campground doubled its capacity when, within its first six months of operation, which is really kind of stunning. But even with these 500 sites for tents and trailers, Fort Wilderness couldn't keep up with demand, uh, which is why company officials in their, on an October 19, 1st, 1972 letter to shareholders said that while capacity of the campground has already been expanded several times, a total of 717 campsites will be available at Walt Disney World by March of 73. So again, you know, another six months trying to get uh, another 250 or thereabouts open. Not only that, because now it's really gotten big and kind of unmanageable uh, from a transportation point of view, uh, this the 650-acre campsite, they're going to add a narrow-gauge steam train with Victorian-style open cars that will transport people on this uh, three-mile-hour loop that will take people from reception down to the, the various recreation and entertainment areas. They mention as part of this report in 72 that mm-hmm. the, the steam train will connect campers with the new Fort Wilderness Stockade and w- Western Town, where complete dining, shopping, and entertainment facilities will be built in phases. Stockade and entertainment. Now, I actually have concept art for the stockade, which I will send you. You know, we can include in the show notes. And I know somewhere I've got some imagery that Gary Goddard, who actually was writing... The, the show that was supposed to be presented in uh, the Western town. In fact, they, they had this intriguing conceit for a nighttime entertainment there. They were going to have this giant steak outside venue where you could sit at a table and eat steak, but you were looking across the street to a, a standard Western setup. And, and you know how the Hoopty Review starts off with, you know, you hear the stagecoach pull up outside and then they come bursting into the room. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, Gary wanted to up the ante with this thing. So you're sitting there eating dinner, and you actually see the stagecoach pull into town, and the cast gets off. And, you know, and what was interesting is that the facades of the buildings were going to be like garage doors. They were suddenly going to go up. And so you could see into the saloon. You could see into the blacksmith shop. You could see into the general store. And this whole evenings of entertainment would happen there in front of you. 
you know, and you sitting in the open air steakhouse could watch this, you know, this whole show unfold. It was going to be pretty amazing. Huh. But anyway, that this this was part, uh, and again, from a different uh, letter from the same period, uh, a resort report from October 22nd, 1972. This was all supposed to be part of a $50 million expansion of Walt Disney World. Again, they mentioned that, uh, you know, they were looking to expand an additional, add additional 300 campsites to the, the 500 that were previously built, the steam train. And here, for the very first time, is the mention of a new swimming area for the campground. Now, why was Fort Wilderness getting all this attention from Disney corporate? Well, some of this obviously had to do with its bare bones, the campground's bare bones beginnings, which were painfully obvious in some sports places around Fort Wilderness. But the other thing was that, and this is from the 73 annual report, one of the most successful new areas in company operations and a base of for generating additional per capita spending at the Walt Disney World Resort has been the Fort Wilderness Campground, which already has a reputation for being among the finest to be found anywhere in the United States. Which so I, people have liked it. Yeah, and, and you know, and and, and again, it, now this is the place where they describe it as a thousand acre facility, but it, so they describe the seven hundred fourteen campsites and that in the future they they could expand to as many as twelve hundred campsites. But then they start to talk about, you know, the the trend in campground visitation was double what the company's initial projections had been. And in fact, for the entire first fiscal year, occupancy of the campground averaged 80 percent. And the, the campsites were filled to capacity during the 15-week summer season. So That's not um, bad. Given, you know, the sort of number crunching that, it, that you do for the unofficial guide, th- this is the stuff that fascinates me. They say in this report that an average of 5.2 guests per campsite was recorded throughout the year. That's huge. That's like, uh, so the average number of visitors to the theme park yep. is uh, low threes, low to mid threes. Mm-hmm. So they're getting like two extra people. That's a 66% increase. Yeah. That's and, and, huge. Well, I guess yeah, and, if it's cheaper, you can afford to do it. But they were also saying that there were some nights when there were in excess of 3,500 people staying at Fort Wilderness. So, but it, it, but here, here's the thing. Here's the line out of the annual report from 1973 that I think is crucial for understanding what happened next at, at Walt Disney World's campground. It's Fort Wilderness okay. will need a major upgrade of its food service and leisure time activities if it is to be able to service all of its overnight guests. Pioneer Hall, the first step in this development of a service-oriented campground complex, will open in February. Fully equipped for musical stage shows, Pioneer Hall will feature a 250-seat steakhouse for ranch-style barbecues, um, a 150-seat snack bar, and an arcade for after-hours recreation. Okay, so so Jim, let's 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 do this. Let's stop here with what we think is going to happen because Pioneer Hall got built. Yep. But my sense is that there's some other story. Between then and now, well, you know, just and, and <laughs> let's yeah, just say bit. that you know, at the exact same time that Disney is announcing these plans, you know, and this is December 1973, uh, yeah, America uh, is in the initial throes of the Arab oil embargo. Oil and, embargo, exactly. I was gonna say, so. Which so affected you, a lot of what Walt Disney World, you know, tried to do in the 70s. I think. Uh, I think. Disney is either building into one recession or building out of one recession, one or the other. There we go. It's, uh, that's the history yeah, of the company. So let's pick this up on the next show, then. We'll do, maybe we'll do an extra one for the, for the month oh, of July. No. That All right, fantastic. All right, folks, you've been listening to the Unofficial Guide Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. 
please go on to iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher and rate our show and tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. Take care, guys.